Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not, coming to you from Milbog Manor Studios. I'm here with my engineer, Jason Harris. Our music was created for us by Jonathan Harmon, and I am your host, Dylan Rory. Today's episode is brought to you by Paul and Mary's Country Kitchen, where you are the only thing on the menu. Today's guest is a musician, radio host, actress, and singer. She's the author of multiple books and screenplays, and she even appeared in a series of comic books. Born in Indianapolis, Indiana, where we happen to be recording this podcast right now, she had dreams of becoming a ballerina or a Broadway star, instead becoming one of the biggest names in the golden age of the adult industry. Coming up with other stars of that era like Christy Canyon, Ginger Lynn, Portia Lynn, and Amber Lynn, no relation. She's noted as the first Native American adult entertainer <clears throat> Let's back that up. She's noted as the first Native American adult entertainer of her stature and as one of the driving forces behind one of the most expensive adult films of the time, 1985's The Rival Tales of Canterbury, which was estimated at that time at around $500,000 to be made. As a musician, she's recorded and toured with the bands W4IK and Vision Quest. Aside from her work in erotica, she's also worked in films alongside some of the biggest cult movie legends of all time, including John Savage, Colleen Brennan, John Saxon, Jennifer Rhodes, Paul Bartell, who doesn't love Paul fucking Bartell, Karen Black, and Paul Leader. She's received the Lifetime Achievement Award from both the AVN Hall of Fame and the Free Speech Coalition. After leaving the adult industry in 1993, she's gone on to live many, many lives. Her 2000 autobiography, The Secret Life of Hypatia Lee, tells the story of her tumultuous childhood, her rise in the adult entertainment world, and the many obstacles she's overcome. Today, she's focused on improving mental health awareness and care through her Native Strength Network. Please welcome to the show the lady whose song, Rub-A-Dub, was featured on the Dr. Demento show alongside Tom Lair's Masochism Tango, the one and only Hypatia Lee. Thank Hi. you for that marvelous <laughs> introduction. You're very welcome. <laughs> How are you? Oh, stellar. That was very kind. Thank you. Very good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's Absolutely. So, um, I know we've we've kind of communicated a little bit. Uh, we have a, a very good common friend in Julie Powers who got us connected, uh, yes, and I know I want to I want to kind of even start there. So she knew you from working on stage with you at um, a show called Tumbleweed. Yes, Julie is such a wonderful person. I love her dearly, but she's also a tremendously talented woman in many regards, not only as a singer and an actress, but costume design and set design and all kinds of behind the scenes things that she can do. Makeup. And like I said, she's a marvelous friend, a very dear friend. Yeah, she's all right, I guess. I like her. So what was that show, Tumbleweed? Oh, it was an original musical that we did in Nashville, Indiana, which is kind of a, a little touristy place in Southern Indiana, lots of um, unique shopping and things like that. And then the theater there, um, and, and that was a lot of fun. I've done a lot of theater in Indianapolis at the old Black Curtain Dinner Theater, um, Footlight Musicals, CES, Civic Theater, but that was back in the day when I was in high school. Um, when I graduated from high school, I had done 72 different plays and musicals. I didn't do much at school. Uh, I did everything in community theater. Mm -hmm. So I, as a, an old community theater dog here in Indianapolis, I know a lot of those places you're talking about. So. Awesome! <laughs> I love Civic Theater. That place is so cool. I did junior civic when I was a kid. Oh, cool. Yeah. They've actually moved again and again now. I can't even, I think they moved up to Carmel now. Really? Um, They're not on Alabama anymore. No, they, they moved all out there. Uh, they went to the, the up by Butler and the art museum there and then the Marion College. And then they ended up moving up to Carmel. We don't talk about that place. Anymore. I know. Carmel. <laughs> Ooh, nose up in the air. But um, 
you know, it's kind of good that they did because that theater, as marvelous as it was, mm -hmm. it was in a pretty dismal state. Yeah. It needed a lot of serious repair. Yeah. So I'm glad they got a better place. I'm yeah. assuming it's better. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Carmel, yeah, it, is. it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What was it like back then in Indianapolis? I, oh I hear God, stories I, from my father and they're all nightmares. Oh, no, I had the time <laughs> of my life. That was some of my, my favorite childhood memories. Um, <laughs> I met so many wonderful people. I remember uh, after rehearsal parties and rap shows and rap parties and sneaking into clubs because it was the 70s and I was underage and one could do that back then back then and disco disco was a big thing so I was a dancer I was often um if I didn't get a speaking role in something I got uh at least the chorus so I was really cool. into the dancing and yeah. I learned to sing along the way but the dancing was my main thing dancer first actor second singer last so We'd go to the to the disco, and all the the guys in the theater, most of them were gay. So it was good to be able to socialize with them and learn about that other lifestyle because my mother is gay, and okay. she and I were estranged at the time. Right. Not because of that. Yes. Um, something completely different. But uh, I really I had many issues with guys, and I felt not threatened, I had been sexually abused, as you know, reading my book, mm -hmm. I didn't feel threatened by these guys. I could forge a very good friendship. We had a camaraderie, so to speak. And they even helped me learn to shape my eyebrows and do my makeup. And we danced at the, at the, uh, at the, at the, the discos together. And then the, the uh, radio stations would have these contests for dancers. And some of my favorite dancers and I would get together after school and, you know, work on a little routine. And then we'd go and we'd win all these contests. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's really fantastic. Cool. Fun. Like I said, some of my best memories. Wow. Yeah. Did you ever go? I have to ask, did you ever go to the Melody Inn? I sure did. <laughs> I bartended there in the 90s. Did you really? We actually, it's like a huge venue now for like punk rock shows and things. Really? Um, yeah. I used to play bebop and stuff on and jazz on yeah. the bebop. I remember slow gin business, and at this time I was like 16. And one of my friends I, I went there the first time when I was 17. So yeah, nothing's yeah. changed. Good, good. One of my friends I think they call now. To this guy who was a cop, and she said, I gotta get her home. She's gotta go to school tomorrow. And he said, What? And I looked at her. And she said, oh, yeah, she's 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 a teacher. She's she's a kindergarten. <laughs> Thank you, bitch. <laughs> Get my ass in trouble here, honey. <laughs> so that, yeah. and you were oh, so I you were really well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a pretty hip venue now. It's it would like, make a good karaoke bar. Uh, they tried it when I was bartending there. It did not really? go well. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. That's yeah. Um, small, you know. So I, I actually, the same lady who owned it when you were hanging out there still owned it when I worked there, Louise. Wow. Remember Louise and Archie? I do uh, remember Louise and Archie. So Archie was, was long dead, but Louise still owned it when I worked there. And she, she'd had throat cancer. She, she had a voice box. Oh, bless her heart. I know. And it was an old, it was, the voice box was ancient. So you couldn't understand her no matter what. Oh. And so then she'd write and you couldn't read it. And when you work for it, it'd be very frustrating. <laughs> now, do you remember Rachel Gadali, I believe was her last name? She had a costume shop next to the Melody. Yeah. They just closed during the pandemic. They, they finally her. closed. Yeah. I remember going to her apartment and making Christmas cookies. Oh, awesome. Out. Yeah, she was a really good friend of mine. Very yeah, they, they just had to close finally after years. Uh, they changed over to Maggie's costumes and then they had to close. Yeah, that uh, was a cool yeah. spot. It was. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you were so you were born in and lived in Hawville, which is yes. just I mean it's basically Indianapolis. They're, yeah, they're just it's just right one of there. those suburbs of Indianapolis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of like Rosita is in LA, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've heard you say in, in interviews and things that your your favorite times there were being outside and with your grandmother most of the time, who at at that time you believed to be your mother. 
Yes, exactly. That, yeah. That when you were very young, what, at what yeah, point, so. at what age did you, did you start to realize, wait a minute, this person I've been thinking is my sister all this time is actually my mom. When she got married and said, you're coming with me. <laughs> and I'm like, what right. do you mean I'm coming with you? Well, I'm your mother. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, okay. I guess I was confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the so woman she... I've been calling mother is really not. And the woman I've been calling Margie is really my mother. Okay, got it. Right. Yeah, I was nine. It's... Yeah. Okay. So, um, and then that of course led to some awful times for you. I know. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave it up to you whether or not you want to go into that. Yeah. There's no need to really go <clears throat> okay. into that. It's your okay. typical stepfather, stepdaughter abuse scenario. Happens yeah. All the time. He was a fucking monster, but, yeah. um, yeah, he was. And he was yeah. to my mother too. He beat her up and, and all kinds of crap. So yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and, uh, for, through all of that, though, um, I know that you today, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but we'll touch on it now. I know that uh, a lot of that led to what you're doing today with the Native Strength Network and uh, trying to improve awareness of mental health, but also care for mental health. Yes. Okay. We'll we'll get to that in a bit. Okay. So, because um, uh, I really want to, I, I want to talk about that for a little while. Okay. I'm very curious about it. Um, but we'll, we'll go ahead and back up. So, uh, we'll fast forward then from your youth in Indy, uh, at what point then did you start working toward going into show business? At what point did you decide this is something I want to aim toward and be an entertainer? I can't remember a time in my life where I didn't. Um, at first I thought it was going to be dance. I wanted to be a ballerina, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, it's going to be theater because I, I am not that good of a dancer and my body isn't shaped like a dancer. You're going to be petite and small. Mm -hmm. I was not. So I thought, okay, it's going to be theater. And I like theater. I like the acting thing. I like it when the audience laughs. I love to make people feel, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I thought that was a lot of fun. And I love the people I hang out with. I just love the people in theater. So I thought that's what it's going to be. So I went to New York City. Another um, friend of a friend was in New York and she had gone there for theater and she had an agent and I met the agent. And the agent was very respectful and honest. And he said, I will hold a party to introduce you to the integral people in the business, but you will have to be very friendly. And I said, well, I get along with people. I don't have an attitude or anything. No, I mean, physically very friendly. And I, Oh. oh, okay. Thanks for your time. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And I went and, home. And what age was that? 18. 18. Okay. Fresh out of high school. I graduated high school a year early. Okay. It was Where'd Washington you go? High School. George Washington High School. George Washington. Okay, I was a yeah. Wasn't a big accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> the accomplishment was that I made it out in my life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what what happened next? What was the next step in your life from there? I looked in the newspaper and said, "Okay, there's got to be a way I can make money with my skills." And I saw this ad, said dancers wanted and minimum wage at the time was $2.35. And they were offering $5 an hour plus tips. And I thought, wow, that's it. And they said, call for an audition. So I called for an audition. They said, okay, do you realize that this is semi-nude? It's You have to wear pasties or band-aids on your nipples and a full bottom uh, bikini underwear. What? Oh, thanks for telling me. Goodbye. Click. Mm -hmm. You know, and I went, whoa, no. So I worked at a department store at Lafayette Square Lazarus. I worked at the Black Curtain Dinner Theater for $15 a day in the office. And I was still living at home. And my grandmother was on Social Security and she could not afford to take care of me. I had a car to maintain. I could not get by on that. So I thought about it a long time, talked to my grandmother about it and called back <laughs> mm -hmm. and said, okay, I'll audition. And I got, of course I got a job and uh, the place that I worked at 
uh, had a Miss Nude World working there. And these contests were held up in Roselawn, Indiana, which is just south of Chicago for anybody who doesn't know. Yep. And there's two nudist camps there that hold contests, Miss Nude Galaxy, Miss Nude World, Miss Nude America. So the owner of the club said, if anybody wants to go to these contests, I'm going to provide transportation in a bus. I'm going to charter a bus. And if you win place or show, it's an automatic increase in your salary. Wow. So it was on a Sunday, day off. So I went and I won. And I came back and I told my grandmother I'd won. And she looked at me and says, I suppose you want me to be happy. <laughs> so i got raised so the next year they had the contest again i thought well i wonder what would happen if i was the two-time winner would i get another raise so i went and i won again and uh, i'm the only two-time winner because they decided that they weren't going to let women enter if they've already won from that okay. point so at these contests, the first time I went, there was all these photographers from different men's magazines and stuff. And um, someone from Caribbean Films who asked me if I wanted to do movies. And the photographers at the magazine took pictures and stuff like that. And I, I had a boyfriend at the time. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is probably not a good idea. Thank you. Anyway, goodbye. And the next year when I came back, we were married. And we were financially struggling. And I had continued to work at this club downtown, the Red Garter. And I had seen... Still there. <laughs> that's amazing. It has moved, though. <laughs> they had to move it to make a park. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I kept seeing these ladies come in doing what I considered movement and not dance. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a show that was just fancy costumes. And you got to have a gimmick. You know, it was <laughs> all along. And they were making a they were making anywhere from six to nine hundred dollars a week in salary. They had not done any magazines, they had not done any movies, but they were feature entertainers. Mm -hmm. So I contact this is during the interim that year between the first and second contest. I contacted one of their agents and I said, you know, I've won this contest, you know, twice. Well, no, once at that time. I said, do you think I could be a feature? And they said, yeah. And they told me how much they would pay. And I put a pen and paper to it. I had to pay for my travel and hotel. And of course, my food. And I had a husband. It wasn't working out. It wasn't enough. Even if I worked every week, which was probably impossible, I, it wasn't enough. So I talked it over with my husband. I said, maybe if I made a few movies with you and made a few layouts, you know, some, mm -hmm. some layouts for men's magazines and stuff, maybe that would increase the salary, you know? Mm -hmm. So I told them yes. And we flew out to LA and they made it look like I was having sex with somebody else in Sweet Young Foxes. Yeah. It was actually my husband mm -hmm. from waist down <clears throat> and everything else was simulated, you know, but uh, those were the first two movies only. And after that, that, that was started, the sweet young foxes and naughty girls and the young like it hot oh yeah okay okay oh no wait a minute i lied about that the young like it hot i did have sex with one other person one other guy i had sex uh -huh. with and okay. um yeah so that was uh an interesting experience and i found out how professional it was mm -hmm. that it was like You'd work on the dialogue, you'd get the blocking done. It was just like a regular movie. As a matter of fact, when I made my movies with Paul Bartel and Karen Black and John Savage, the people that were the crew members were the same people. <laughs> <laughs> so I got onto the set, the first R-rated movie with John Savage, and the guy's high higher patient. I went, well, what are they shooting a porn next door or something? No, I'm on your set. I went, wow that's cool <laughs> yeah this is what i do when i don't shoot porn <laughs> very cool so um i was amazed that it was as professional as it was when it came down to the sex it was all okay you guys do what you're comfortable with i'm you know leaving it up to you goodbye it's like shooting wildlife you know uh, you yeah do what they do naturally <clears throat> and you work around them you shoot you don't a lot of people think that the director sits there and says okay now i want you to do this position i want you to do this no 
most directors walk off the set. Really? They aspire wow. to something higher. They don't want anything to do with the set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, yeah, that's this part. Yeah, do what you want to do. You know. It's I'm gonna, I, it's, I'm gonna it, hang out with the caterer. <laughs> I think it's changed, sadly, but yeah. That, oh my god, it's changed <laughs> terrifically. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh that that era of uh, of adult entertainment is fascinating to me, and um, I mentioned in the intro the rival tales of Canterbury, uh, for movies like that it it was, and it's like you say, and, and I think it's been captured pretty well in pop culture, and like movies like Boogie Nights kind of captured the idea of the um, the director looking at it as an auteur and yes. making making a movie that happens to have hardcore sex in it right and but you build a narrative story around that that builds something from it i I, i've heard a definition of pornography and i don't agree with it but the definition was uh, of a pornographic film is that all of the dialogue is designed to lead you into the next sex scene and i think that's what it turned into at some point but back in the golden age those movies were telling a story yeah. There just happened to be sex scenes in them. Well, that's and, how I tried to write them. You yeah. know, but I did yeah. have in mind that there's a formula. You got to have at least six sex scenes per movie. Mm-hmm. And you have to have the first one within the first four to six minutes. So I knew that <laughs> right. I was writing for that formula. Yeah. But Chaucer wrote Canterbury Tales. All I did was write the screenplay. And Canterbury Tales is full of sex. So yeah, I, I actually <laughs> had to edit it out because there were some things. That I I wrote I read that he wrote and I said I'm not doing that I'm not being involved in a movie that has that in it no we are not doing that I need a rate for that yeah 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 so uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Canterbury because it is a it's a huge movie the I wanted to tell you one unique thing that's a pretty interesting point is that when it came time to do the costuming because it is a period piece beautiful costuming. Thank you. That's credit to Universal Studios. Really? Yes. We went to Universal Studios and we said, we're doing a movie. And they said, what kind of a movie? He said, well, it's an adult movie. It has sex, but it's about Canterbury Tales. It's a takeoff of Canterbury Tales. Oh, no problem. You got money? Yeah. Okay. No problem. <laughs> so they showed us their warehouse. They've got this universal warehouse. You can't even see from one end to the other, just lined with clothes and like, what period do you want? And they've wow. got everything from all kinds of periods. They're organized in periods. They're organized in countries. They're organized by culture. They're organized by size and sex. I mean, it's Very just cool. phenomenal. So you go there, you get all of these, and they are fantastic costumes. It frustrates me when people just say, oh, it's a porno. No. <laughs> It's a period piece with costumes and big brick stone buildings. And, and you know, and it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous thing to look at. Shot on and 35 th- millimeters. What, thou, what shalt thou say? And yeah. you know, old English. I mean, yes. pornos don't talk in old English. Right. <laughs> so what, when you were, when you came up with this idea, how did you, how did you secure financing first off or something? Well, like this? I was under contract with Caribbean Films. Mm-hmm. And Harry Moni is the one Caribbean Films who asked me if I wanted to make adult movies. And I signed a contract with them. I was with them for three years. I did six films with them. And after the first or second film, I can't remember, I visited his place in Michigan. And he said, you know what I really want to do? <laughs> what, direct? No, that's a standard joke in the business. Right. <laughs> no, what do you really want to do? Is, I want to make something that's classy, that's art, something that's that's really respectable, something that something that I can go into a courtroom and said, yes, I'm proud of that. That is socially redeeming value right there. That is not obscene. I said, okay, okay. And so I, I thought about it. And my husband and I thought about it and he thought about it and we met again and we kind of all came up with Canterbury Tales. There was a lady, somebody's lover, I can't remember, Lady Flattery's lover or something. Lady Chatterley's lover. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yes, but that's not as popular. That's not as well known as Canterbury Tales. Every English lit class makes you read Canterbury Tales. Yeah. So let's do that. So that's how it came to be. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah. So um, 
you got you got the job of writing that. What was yeah, that? Oh, and, and at the same time, I said, okay, you you want to do something classy? I want to do a movie about ballet. And he said, ballet. Nobody wants to watch ballet. And I said, well, it's not about the dance. It's about the dancers. I said, there's this husband and wife and they own a studio and he was a famous dancer in the company and he had a tragic car accident and now he can hardly walk and he can't dance anymore. And so they've got the studio, but because of this injury, he's also impotent. So their marriage is falling apart. So she's bringing other women into the relationship to try to get him interested and be able to perform and all of this kind of thing. Okay, we'll do a ballet movie. So I even got to dance on point in that. Right. <laughs> well, that's kind of cool. You, so you would, you basically, you'd been there long enough. You've kind of built the stock in yourself there enough that they trusted you with these projects. Yeah. That's a, well, that's the a first movie I made with Caribbean, um, they hand me, handed me the script for the young, like it hot. And it was 12 pages handwritten. And I said, is this a treatment? What is this? He goes, that's a script. I said, you're kidding me. I laughed just like you did. And he said, what's the matter? You think you can do better? I put it down. I said, I know I can do better. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So he said, okay, I'll give you a chance. Write a script. Let's see. Let's see what you can do. So I wrote the Young Like It Hot. He said, yeah, that's, that's a lot better. You're right. We'll do this one. Very cool. I, I don't think people today, especially, um, you know, as, as new generations are coming along, understand the amount of work that went in to those films. Um, it, I always go to original score. The fact that an original score was written for a single film that was going to be shown in midnight houses in Times Square is, I think, one of the greatest things in the world yeah. about that era. Um, you know, that that amount of work and time that went into it was the same amount of work and time they were putting into the deer hunter exactly. and, and everything else. And the, yeah. the same amount of staff. And you had all of these people working these different cogs to put together this one movie that, again, would become a novelty for people to go see. And some of right. them would say, oh, I'm just seeing it as a joke. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, whatever. Or <laughs> Back in the day when they had the theater houses before video and all that, I used to do a show before my movie played and a show after it played. Well, they also played other movies. Mm -hmm. And one of the movies they played was a movie called Sadie. And it had the best music. It had a great theme song and wonderful music. I just stay in between shows just to listen to the music sometimes. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you, so when, when your movies were showing, did you travel with them occasionally to promote them? All the time. All I the time? everything mm -hmm. in storage and was on the road almost two years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What was, Four so, shows a day, six days a week. Usually the first show was a noontime show because most of the places had a buffet. And then the last show was the last one for the night. So it was like 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. And then oftentimes I would do the 6 to 10 drive time radio show to promote it in the morning. So I'm working my ass off. Yeah. I go back and take naps in between shows and stuff. And I took my kids on the road and homeschooled them mm -hmm. in between shows. Right. And at that, at that time, you were living still in Indiana, correct? Down in southern oh, yeah. Indiana? Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Wow, that that's a lot of work. I mean, it was geez. actually easier to be in Indiana for the travel because it was more centrally located. Yeah, but yeah. you're right. That was a hell of a lot of work. Long day, if nothing else. I think you know, about it now and I go, how did I do that? And no drugs. I don't even drink coffee. It's I think it's just a matter of uh, when you're of a certain age, you have that ability to kind of deny <laughs> That you're I tired. Think that's it. And I knew that it's now or never. This make the hay while the sun shines because this is only going to last till you're 35 at best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and when you're out touring these things and doing these promotions, um, what's the audience like? I'm sure it differs from show to show, but 
you probably you probably could tell a midnight show from a noon show pretty quickly. <laughs> yes, and a Tuesday show from a Friday show. And it depends on what city you're in. Different areas of the country had different behaviors, if you will. Mm -hmm. And there were many clubs that I worked at that were non-alcoholic. You could go totally nude if there was no right. alcohol. And yeah. when there's no alcohol, they're far more behaved. You get to Schenectady, New York, and not at the dancers, but they're throwing bottles. Just breaking them on the floor and <laughs> stuff? Breaking them on the floor. Yeah, they're pretty rowdy. <laughs> I did not go back to that place. Yeah, and then you get to other places. And for the most part, the audience is just like in theater. They take your lead. If you teach them how to react, if you come on stage, go, yeah, 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 you know, act real crazy and, and real, you know, overly sexual, let's say, they're going to respond to that. If you come mm -hmm. on stage and you hold your head up high and you do a classy act in a sequined or rhinestone gown and, you know, then they're going to respond to that equally as well. So I always did a question and answer session after my show. How were those? Those were unique, <laughs> very insightful. Um, I, I learned standard comeback lines like, did you come by yourself or is the rest of the horse outside? <laughs> did you call me a horse? Says, no, you just did. <laughs> you know, but uh, for the most part, like I said, it's, they go by your lead. You come on, you say, hello, everyone. Like a Carl Haas thing. And then they're like, um, you know, Carl Haas? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Most of those people had no clue. So um, you open it up to questions and it's how you respond. If you start talking in graphic detail, they're going to be like that in their next questions. If you start talking about, well, when I worked with so-and-so, I found him to be very respectful. He didn't say when I had sex with so-and-so, mm -hmm. he was good. No, you said I, when I worked with him, he was respectful. And so they take your lead, you know, and follow you in that regard. And the thing is that after the question and answer session, I did Polaroids with people for sale and sold videos and pictures mm -hmm. and stuff. So if you come down to that gutter level, you're going to pay for it. Right. I've seen other actresses pay for it when they go to um, stand with somebody to take a photograph and they reach out and they grab them. And it's like, oh, oh I thought I could because you were acting like this on stage. But if I act like a class act, mm -hmm. and well, hello, sir. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your buying a Polaroid with me, shall we? they're not going to grab you. Yeah. And if did, they do, they're drunk and they get booted. Yeah, I was going to say, did the, did, so the venues, I'm assuming, had some sort of contingency for those people. Did, did you have oh, yeah. bouncers and things out there? Ready oh, to yeah, pull? there were bouncers Good. right there all the time. Usually when I took the Polaroids, my husband was taking the Polaroid and there were bouncer, there's a bouncer on each side. Okay. So you had three people to contend with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I've only been to, I, I saw Christy Canyon uh, perform. And uh, while she was on stage, I watched her just control the room. And it was, it was amazing to watch. And it was, she behaved just as you described. It came out, you are up there. I'm performing for you. You are here to watch and enjoy. And if you get handsy, anything, and I saw her just, she would just point and I'd watch a guy disappear. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, honey, I'm a star. Do you know how many thousands of dollars they're paying to have me here? <laughs> they will throw you out with no remorse. Yeah. <laughs> what, so uh, was that when you were with Caribbean still? Yes, I was with Caribbean and then I went with... Um, you were Vivid Caballero, then Vivid? Yes. Okay. Okay. That's how it went. Yeah. Okay. And did were you did Vivid, were you still doing those kinds of promotional tours with Vivid? Oh, well? Vivid didn't set those up. I did those all on my own. You were doing those on your own. Okay. Yeah, okay. The companies that I made movies for had very little, if anything, and only Caribbean. Because they had one time Caribbean films on 350 theaters. Mm -hmm. Now they're the deja vu chain. 
Oh, I didn't Same know that. Same people, yeah. Okay. And they had, everywhere you see a deja vu, they had a theater in that city. And the theaters were where they played my movies and then they'd pay me to come into the theaters. But other mm -hmm. than that, it was all on my own through an agent. I booked the clubs. Okay. Didn't have anything to do with that. I know that, um, and I don't know if this is getting into an area you'll know anything about for it, but um, it's widely known that the pornography industry has, there's a lot of mob ties within it. And you hear stories from the, I'll go back first to like the comics in the 50s and 60s who would play these clubs that were run by mobsters were treated like kings and queens. They loved them and the, the entertainers were always, always treated well. And they always talked highly. These guys always treated me like a class act. There's famous stories of, um, I think Joey Bishop was on stage when, uh, I think it was Joey Bishop, when somebody got killed in, in the venue. And he oh just kept going. God. He kept going. And from that point on, the mob loved him. I think it was Joey Bishop. I may be getting the name wrong. Wow. But you hear these stories. <laughs> so in the adult industry, did were you guys having to deal with any of that? Were you contending with some of that? Or was that all so far up the chain? And the like when you're getting to the distribution and stuff that you, you guys weren't really touched by it? Well, it was there. And you kind of knew it was there but it wasn't really in your face. Um, for example, I had Show World in New York City, Times Square, 42nd and 8th Avenue. That place was owned by the mafia. <clears throat> Clear and outright, no doubt. And when you go into these places, there's usually someone assigned to help you. And because my shift was noon to 3 a.m., there's usually a couple people. But this particular place is one guy. He is assigned to help me and to escort me around and to make sure that I got to my shows on time, even though I had my husband and all that. Mm -hmm. And like we went to his house, which is a big sky rise for the um, 4th of July fireworks. On wow. The, on the Hudson. Yeah. That, that was, was pretty, nice. I bet. <laughs> Very nice. But I asked him, I said, so this place is mafia, right? And he goes, well, we're um, <laughs> building. <laughs> building isn't the mafia um but the cockroaches on the bill that's the mafia <laughs> okay okay i get you i won't ask any more questions mr gambino uh, <laughs> and then um when i was with caballero films i found out after i left that the people in charge um there was a big sting operation and the FBI and everything because they were a front for a cocaine laundering cartel. Shit. Yeah. I, I know I know there was yeah. like a lot of controversy with what was going on there. And I know that there were drugs and I, I mean it, it went deep when that was busted. Well, the scary thing that scared me was with this particular company, they had withheld funds. They were supposed to pay me every week so that I didn't work for another company. And I had a contract for two years. So I was going to check every week, basically for not working, mm -hmm. you know, and they didn't pay me. And I was on a set and I, this is back in the day before video, everything was in film. And so there were canisters. So I confiscated a few canisters as ransom. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know who I was dealing with. We met them in a hotel parking lot in Marina Del Rey and said, we want the cash, my husband and I, and you can have your canisters. They brought the cash and they got their canisters. And I'm alive to tell about it, thank God. But I didn't know, I didn't know these people were in the drug cartel. Yeah. Uh, cheers to your ballsiness. That's <laughs> I had seen it done before. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, on one of the shoots with Caribbean films, he always made deals with the crew. Look, we're doing two movies back to back. I'll pay you X amount of dollars. Bottom line, there's your money. No overtime. We're shooting for, like, Bible tells of Canterbury was shot for nine days. So we're, we got plenty of time. There should be no need for overtime. This is your salary. Don't nickel and dime me to death because this is what it's going to be. Right. 
Okay, well, we went way, way over time, like three in the morning over time. And the DP withheld some canisters. So my crew wants some more money because they were supposed to get off at seven. You know, and it's not our fault that it took longer than mm -hmm. anticipated. We did what we were supposed to do. Well, they got their money. Then Caribbean got their canisters. <laughs> wow. So did you guys end up going over budget then with, with Canterbury? No. Oh, good. That one came in all right because we knew that it was going to be really expensive with the period piece and mm -hmm. working. I was the assistant director there. So I took everybody aside and said, look, I know the dialogue's funky, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but we're going to have to work on this dialogue so that it sounds authentic. And we did have several Screen Actors Guild actors on the set, like the Miller, because um, wow. he didn't have a sexual part. Mm -hmm. So that made it a little easy, uh, easier for not only his part, but it was a good inspiration for other people that didn't really know how to act with this language I... barrier with the old English. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, now you guys think ahead. When you're in the sex scenes, don't ad lib something that's contemporary. <laughs> so there's a scene you will laugh your butt off there is a scene in there <laughs> with this guy who's a stable boy and i think she's the queen or something i know the scene yeah my lady oh god every time i hear that i'm like oh my god i just ah, go ahead and say it say it again what is what is the line he says you want me to say it really yeah. Uh -huh. balls, my lady. <laughs> Kills me every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that I think Chaucer would have appreciated that. So <laughs> I think he would have for somebody who had the inspiration to write it as he originally did. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and all as we you did was he added the gypsy scene um, because, mm -hmm. like I said, I had to edit out one of his stories because it's just that <clears throat> I'm diametrically opposed to that. Right. So um, in that gypsy scene, I got to play the violin. So I got to fulfill a lot of my fantasies. I wrote, I directed, cool. I assisted directed, and I directed, mm -hmm. and I did the dancing on point, and I sang the the theme song for Body Girls. And, you know, I got to play my violin. So I got to fulfill a lot of my fantasies. Cool. As, as a, in my career fantasies, not sexual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, when you, I, I know that it's bittersweet, I'm sure, was, as you look back at some of those things. Um, but those moments, those things that you just described, the, being able to do those things in a performative way that other people were going to see. I'm sure that gives you something in the heart it does it does it's one of those things that i'll remember when i'm on my deathbed going i got to do this i got to do that and i got to do the other <laughs> <laughs> that's very cool and i got to dance I mean, around the country australia new zealand canada um, italy doing my show i choreographed it i chose the music i, I designed my costumes so yeah, I, I fulfilled a lot of my dreams. What uh, what's some of the music you used? I used popular rock and roll music. Uh, I loved dancing to Owner of a Lonely Heart. Um, I used to do Shakedown, but only when I was feeling really good because it is so vast. Yes, it's, it's a great aerobics <laughs> song. Um, lots of U2, um, New Year's Day, um, In the Name of Love. Oh, Journey, lots of Journey, lots of Def Leppard, whatever was at the top of the charts. Right. You know, Casey Kasem, whatever was at the top of the charts. That's what I loved. I just, I was just drawn to it when um, The Wall came out, or not The Wall, um, the one with, uh, gosh, it was when I was still dancing at the Red Garter, I, I danced almost every song on that Michael Jackson album. Uh, rock with you and and all oh um, with, uh, they had pretty young thing and all that on it too yes yes, yes. standing um, in front of a brick wall that's yeah off the wall <laughs> was it off the wall 
That's what it was. Yeah. Life off the wall. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And Robbie Robertson. Oh, Robbie yeah. Robertson's Red Road Ensemble. I danced to um, Ghost Dance a lot. I love that song. I, in the third song, it's customary to, because there's four songs or five. In the fourth song, it's customary to do some floor work. I lay out a little rug and I get down there and I do, you know, some splits and some gymnast light gymnastics. I am not a gymnast, <laughs> but do a few things like that. And I always danced to ghost dance. Okay. And then I did a fire show where I had a bowl of fire and I'd pick it up with my fingers and mm -hmm. rub it on my body. And I did that with ghost dance too. Cool. Did you do fire eating at all? No, I didn't do the eating. Okay. I just did the rubbing on my body. I used a different fuel that was far cooler. What'd you use? Alcohol? Yes. Okay. I used to fire eat in a sideshow and um, ah. I always like, I like Coleman fuel. A friend yeah, of mine, a friend, the guy, scary. the guy who taught me, he's like, it tastes the best. Use it. <laughs> oh my goodness. I did a, um, I did a Mrs. O'Leary's cow impersonation in Chicago. I was doing my fire show at a theater, oh, no. old theater, yes. And I used to do my fire show not only with the bowl, but with torches. Mm -hmm. And I had a pitcher on stage that I kept the torches in. Right. Pitcher knocked over. Oh, no. Yeah, I got on fire all this stage. Luckily, I always had somebody stand down stage with a fire extinguisher for effect. Right. Because I, I thought, <laughs> I'll never need this with this cool fuel. No, we needed it. Oh my God. That'll excite no you. No more torches. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was scary. I thought I was going to burn Chicago down again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe they actually had me back after that, but they did. <laughs> God love them. <laughs> It's a so, hot show, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so you you left the industry in '93. That's you know I actually put all my notes down. Okay, I don't no I don't I ever do that. Well, I'm just saying I never do that. But but we're just having a great conversation. I just put them all away because I kind of I, I know what you want to talk about and I kind of know where I want to talk about, but we haven't gotten any of them yet because I'm just having fun chatting with you. So that's awesome. <laughs> just I'm dropped very, it off. I'm very impressed. That's very nice. Thank so, you. So um, was that, was it, was I right there with 93? I was think it was 92. 92. It's hard okay. to remember. I did. Um, I had my second son in 1990 and I did a film at the end. He was in February. I did a film at the end of the year. And I think I did one in 91 and I think I did one in 92 can't remember <laughs> i've slept since then sure sure and so what what made you what was the impetus for leaving oh this is a story so i was working with vivid video and vivid video was getting less and less professional they never were the epitome of of, of uh, professionalism not like caribbean films was at all totally different not like it is today but totally different from caribbean it was quite a step down several steps down so uh, Paul Thomas was the director yes. and customarily he would come to the set while I was in the makeup chair and say, here's the script for the day. One day shoots. Here's the script we're shooting. You know my limitations. So I know there's not going to be anything sexual. I'm not going to like in here. Uh, besides the sex is pretty much all up to us anyway, but it's the dialogue. And that's what I live for. That's the only reason I'm in the business is to act. The sex is what I do to be in the business. I'd oftentimes dance and forget to take off my clothes. Well, the audience would remind me, but I'd get so wrapped up in my dance and my choreography, and I get so wrapped up in the acting. And if I have to take some clothes off or have sex in order to do that, at least it's under a controlled environment, having sex with somebody I've chosen to have sex with. And when I say cut, it's cut, you know? So I have a lot more control, but, the thing I live for is the dialogue. So you give me these juicy rolls with all this wonderful dialogue because you know I can handle it and you give it to me while I'm sitting in the makeup chair. <sighs> so that made me mad to begin with, mm -hmm. but I was used to that. Then he says, I've been up all night snorting cocaine with my wife 
and arguing. So I'm going to have to go take a nap. I will see you later. I know you have directed. I know the DP has directed. You guys will be just fine on your own. Okay, fine. Not like I could stop him. He wasn't much of a help when he was there anyway. So he leaves. We start working on the script. I've worked with this cinematographer for years. We're old friends. So we got this done. This was not a problem. By three o'clock, we had like four scenes to shoot. Started at seven. He comes back at three and says, how you doing? I said, we're almost done. Look at how far we've gotten. He goes, oh shit. I gave you the wrong script. We're gonna have to start all over. Excuse me? We're gonna have to start over from the top. We're gonna have to start over. This is the wrong script. Well, we're getting paid for two movies, right? Oh no, I can't pay you anymore. Oh, goodbye. I walked off the set. No calls from the owner of Vivid, Steve Hirsch, to see what happened or what was going on. No apologies from him, from PT, mm -hmm. nothing. The story gets worse, but I'll end there. So. Okay. That was the I, I have to this is this is the only question I asked with an agenda. It's because I I knew why I knew that story. Ah, but I bravo, didn't I bravo. didn't I didn't know who the director was. <laughs> so yeah. I'm gonna try and get that out of you. Yeah, you just told me at the bill at the top. Okay. <laughs> Paul Thomas. Oh. Paul Thomas, okay. Yes, exactly. And uh yeah, I, I actually what I know of him is limited, but that doesn't surprise me. So yeah, yeah, yeah. He has quite a reputation. <laughs> yes, indeed. So that you know, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back, and you're out. You're done. Yeah. And so, did you did you have an idea what you're going to do next? There you go, Hypatia Lee, interesting lady with an interesting life. Part two, we talk some more. Next week, I owe you guys Jackie Naaman Jones, Debbie from Mono Sands of Fate. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago. I was hoping to have it up last Monday. Uh, in fact, I committed to that and it fell apart, but I will have it up next Monday. Sorry about that, you guys. If you're looking forward to that, it will be up next Monday. After that, part two of my conversation with Hypatia Lee. Following that, my conversation with Jack Hill, the great Jack Hill. Hope you guys are doing well. And if you're going out and about, please be safe. This Delta variant is no joke. And if you are out and about, please take care of your servers because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we don't piss on hospitality. Later, kids.